It's simple, really. Great stories with a good cup of tea. It's the Tea with Mike show. Please welcome to today's episode of the Tea with Mike show, Alicia Risling. Alicia is a former Olympian athlete, winning a bronze medal for Canada in the two-man bobsleigh in the Pyeongchang. Is that right? <laughs> it's Pyeongchang, yeah. That's why we have the expert in the house that was in South Korea. And it's one of the only people in the world that has piloted three types of bobsleds. A monobob, a two-man, and also a four-man. He's now the director of partnerships with the Canadian Hockey League, also a public speaker, and also creates and coaches vision board workshops to help people set a clear path for the future. Welcome to the podcast. Excited to dive in. Lots to get into today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Great. So let's start really easy. Set the context for the audience. So where did you grow up and where do you call home now? I am Berta girl through and through. I grew up in Edmonton. I went to university in Edmonton and then I had moved to Calgary for the sport of bobsled. Obviously, there's a track here in Calgary. And that was 11 years ago now. I've been in Calgary. And so Calgary's now home, but I still go back to Edmonton quite often. So I joke, I spend a lot of time on Highway 2. <laughs> go back and forth between the two, right? Back and forth all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so what was some of your favorite childhood memories growing up and why? Well, I grew up playing every sport imaginable. Always, uh, I come from a very athletic family. And my parents always encouraged me to, to stay busy and, and try everything. So whether it be figure skating from the time I was two years old to all the way through university where I was playing at the club level, super competitive in four different sports in which I got scholarship offers in all four. My, my childhood memories, I think, are, are all being around teams, being, being active. And, and of course, my favorite thing would be cheering on the Edmonton Oilers. Lovely. And so do you come from a spotty family? Is it, is it in the blood or is it just a natural talent that you have that maybe other people in your family don't quite possess? No, I, I come from a very sporty family. I'm the oldest of three siblings. My sister who was in the middle was, I'm, I'm 5'11". My sister's 5'4", so she didn't really get the athletic genes as much as I did. Not to say she didn't play out through, through high school, but um, my little brother who's five years younger than me he actually played for the Calgary Hitmen for five years. He was the captain for two. And he then went on to have a professional career uh, playing mostly in the East Coast League. He played in Europe as well. And then he just went to school at Nate. And he was part of the Ooks team that won the ACAC championship last year. And this all stems from everybody on my father's side playing hockey. My dad played pro in Europe for many, many years. And my uncle, my godfather played in the NHL for a long time as well. So come from, it's not just a sport family. We'll call it a hockey family, but unfortunately I didn't play hockey at all. So when you guys, if you do get together at like family gatherings, do you ever play sport? Is it quite competitive? Even if you're just playing maybe like a board game, is there a competitive nature? <laughs> always always my parents are so wonderful they built a full sport court for us in our in our childhood house that they still live in so I visit often and it can be set up with a tennis net across a volleyball net across it's got a basketball basically full-size three-point hoop so we're always out there playing something in the winters my dad would put ice it over and build us a rink 
So if we weren't out there skating around and shooting pucks, we were <laughs> practicing our curling skills. So everything's always a competition around with, with my family, that's for sure. Awesome. And then so away from the sports a little bit, like academically, like what was some of your favorite subjects in school? Well, my mom's a teacher, so education was always the, the primary in the household. It was out of out of high school, you're going to school no matter what. So that was always the, the only option for us on the table. I was science and math nerd, actually. I, I actually finished uh, in the top three grades in grade 10 and 11. So I, I was a little bit gifted academically throughout high school, which did not set me up well for university because I lack the study skills that you need when you actually get faced with really tough courses. But I, I studied kinesiology, so but I have a Bachelor of Science, so my, my major was always focused on the human body, but uh, science is definitely my background. Awesome. So in your bio, when I was doing a little bit of research before the show, that you mentioned that when you were in grade five, you kind of set this goal of gaining an athletic scholarship paid for your university education. Now, to a lot of people, including myself, when I was reading this, that's quite an early age to set such, I guess, lofty goal. So how were you able to come up with that that goal at such a young age when most people, not trying to stereotype too much, would be both thinking about mm-hmm. like hanging out with their friends or like going over for a pizza party or a sleepover, you know what I mean? But that seems a very mature goal for such a young age. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and, and that comes down to my mom. So uh, that grade five assignment you were speaking to is kind of a little different because I think you're about 10 years old in grade five. And he, he was an interesting frame of the question. The question was not when we ask kids this all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? We are like, how many times can you remember as a child asking that? I, I know I've asked so many of my friends' kids that that question and the answers are hilarious because sometimes you hear an astronaut or or a firefighter but then sometimes you hear kids that want to be a zookeeper or you know like just little things that they know and understand what it is but this question in particular was not what do you want to be when you grow up it's what do you want to do when you finish high school and and when we ask that question I think now I, I ask it a lot to the junior high and high school kids that I speak to and a lot of them have a plan. They're like, I'm going to go to school. Well, are you going to go to a university? Are you going to go to a trades college? Are you going to take a year off to travel? Are you going to just work so you can acquire some income to be able to pay for school? Those are kind of things that I encourage younger and younger people to start thinking about because you can start planning ahead for that pretty young. And as long as you have the support of an adult and Mine was definitely supported by my mother, but it was it was more like forced on by my mother that I was going to school, university, no matter what. When I graduated, that was kind of the the end all, the be all from for my family. It was a an absolute must, and for me. And then my mom made me aware of you know we could you can still play sports. And as a female growing up, there wasn't a lot of options for me to be a professional athlete when I was older, especially in the sports that I was pursuing. And so for me, I never got to dream of being a professional athlete because there was really no such thing as female professional athletes, except for in tennis and golf. And I, as much as I love those events now, I definitely was not into them when I was younger. So for me, my, my goal of, of kind of playing the top level of sport that I could get to meant that I had to play at a high level of, of college or university. So that was really what I was aspiring to. 
And that's why I set that, that goal at such a young age. Great. And so you must be excited more generically, I guess, about the future of women's sports and how much it continues to develop and the opportunities that are slowly being created and more quality in sports, right? You're right. It's it's moving at a snail's pace, but it's the needle is moved. And it's even if you would have told me at 14 years old that I could have been a professional athlete until I was 33, I would have laughed in your face because that just like really wasn't an option. It wasn't something that I really could see it. I couldn't see it anywhere. So I didn't know that that's something that I could aspire to. But the age old slogan where there's a will, there is a way. And that's how I kind of stumbled into the sport of bobsled, which was a late entry sport that I ended up turning into a 10 year career, kind of at the highest level, which, you know, it wasn't something that I grew up dreaming that I wanted to do. But I knew the end goal was I wanted to be an athlete for as long as I could and accomplish some pretty cool things that way. And and that's how I turned it into. So I'm so pumped for women's sports and the future of women's sports. There's a long way to go still, but oh, it, sure. it's amazing where we're at now, even with having professional women's soccer leagues in, in North America. And it's looking more and more like, you know, the WNBA has crazy airtime now compared to what it used to and, and, and is watched significantly more than it was used to. And even the smaller sports and, and Olympic sports are, are getting some tractions as well. So I'm pumped. I'm pumped. And I, I'm really happy for the next generation of little girls. Originally, I'm from England. I follow football a little more closely than I follow hockey. And in the summer, the England's women team won the, like, the European Championship. And for so long, there's been all this hype about the men and how much talent they have, but they just quite, haven't quite like stitched it together. So to see the, the buzz and the adrenaline for the women's side of the game and the spotlight and the attendance and the media, yeah, and just all of the attention that was on that specific event, because there wasn't a lot going on in sports at that particular time. I just see people filling the stands and uh, more TV channels covering it. And that goes all the way down to the grassroots level and the role models that these athletes can ha have on the next generation is, is only exciting, right? It's also crazy that some of their accomplishments because a lot of them have second jobs, unfortunately, because of the gap in pay between men and women's sport, specifically football, because that's kind of what I followed. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> big big disparity in in pay gap there for sure but it's kind of one of those chicken the egg things where you, you have to have a business model that supports it but it, there's so many things that have to happen to to gain fan fandom in general and and fans are creating fans is how we create in revenue and it's it, it it's a sick game and it's somebody's got to step up and kind of take a hit at first i think but it is working it's getting better and at least now the wages are are respectable wages, whereas you're right before, like even now, a lot of a lot of women do like work full time or or part time or whatever it might be because they're they're paying it's on a pay to play model. And I know for my career in bobsled, it was pay to play way more often than it was not. <laughs> yeah, we could uh, we'll definitely get into the specifics of that a little later, but. So kind of a more generic question, who who are some of your favorite athletes of all time and why? Uh, favorite athlete of all time. So my, my favorite athlete, and you'll, you might appreciate this as a football fan, but Christine Sinclair is the captain of Team Canada Soccer. 
And she, I, I grew up playing soccer all the way through till grade 12. And I actually just went back last year and started playing again. It was so much fun. But I, I went to the Canada U16 event and I would have been in, it was a huge tournament. It was like Brazil. It was played at Commonwealth Stadium, 60,000 fans seat stadium there wasn't 60,000 fans there but there was a lot like I'd say there was over 30 and my mom would drop off my soccer teammates and I there was a big group of us and we'd go watch three back-to-back games they would just leave us there with like 20 bucks so we could buy a hot dog and a pop at some point and watch all these games and Christine Sinclair was my number she wore number 12 she scored a lot of goals and she immediately became my favorite player. And it's kind of funny because she's actually not even that much older than me, but it was just at that impressionable age where, you know, she was 16 and, and sporting the Maple Leaf and, and I was probably only 11 or 12. So um, very impressionable and, and followed her career all the way through from, from Canada's first, first time getting a chance to compete for an Olympic medal to, to now multiple medals at the last three games. And, she's still going. So she's definitely by far has always been my female role model. And I was lucky enough to grow up with a couple other female Olympians, one that lived next door and one that I used to babysit for. So I always had really powerful females influencing my life and, and always have been very fortunate to be supported by the males in my life as well. So. Fantastic. So what kind of inspired you to study for a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology at university? And how do you think it helped you become a better athlete? Well, my inspiration was that I was going to go to med school. That was the ultimate goal. I was going to go to med school and I knew I needed a science degree to get in, but I kind of always thought that if I needed a backup plan and didn't get into med school, I didn't when I have a Bachelor of Chemistry or a Bachelor of Physics, because I wouldn't be pursuing um, careers in, in those fields. So my backup plan was to go into physio or to Cairo. So being in kinesiology allowed me to get kind of all the prerequisites I need to go to med school while at the same time studying the human body, which I found absolutely fascinating and learning about biomechanics and physiology. And, and ultimately it's funny because I didn't go to it to help me in my career, but it did. It absolutely did. Because when I go into any sort of physio office and I have an injury and they can explain to me, you know, you tore this muscle, it's affecting this pole. And I can understand that. And it always made me more accountable to my rehab because I was able to understand the why I was doing what I was doing or being told what to do, as well as even things like physiology and understanding hormones and understanding kind of what, what my nervous system was going through when I faced a year where I was under severe overtraining syndrome. I, I was able to understand the why behind it. And I think ultimately I leaned on that ultimate education that I had. And there was a couple of times actually that I went down and I went home to my parents house out of the basement and pulled out an old textbook and like specifically to look up something that I was going through at the moment. And remembering I learned about it one time and wanted to refresh my memory. That's fantastic. And so as you go through your university journey, what, what were some kind of maybe skills that you learned and developed? As my first year, I was on both the track and field team and the basketball team. My basketball team went all the way to the national final. We lost by four points. It still hurts. But I learned so many lessons that year, trying to take five courses, three labs included in that, being practiced twice a day for the first three months of, of the semester, being so exhausted all the time uh, and barely hanging on by a thread. I think that was my first kind of dose of reality and what 
really like hard life is like. So that was, that was quite the kick in the pants and understanding that I was going to have to elevate my game to a completely another level if I was a not going to get kicked out of university for falling behind academically and, and B trying to understand how time management is just such an important thing in managing my energy levels. And obviously my priority was my basketball team. We were really good. We played wrap ton of games like we had to play all the way through to the very last game of the year and it was kind of my first real shot at what what true resiliency is I was lucky enough as a rookie that I I came off the bench but I did play in every single game and and was put in some in some really interesting scenarios as well where I was given a task and I had to go out there and execute and for me I was a defensive player so I was put often my task was to shut down their be- their best player. So I, I really was put in some in some really pressure filled moments right from the get go. And and my whole university career was about learning how to manage different personalities, playing with different people on your team, especially when you're on a bunch of, you know, 17 to 21 year old women. There's a lot of emotions that go around when you're and uniting everyone towards a common goal is uh, sometimes more difficult than than it would appear for people who are as motivated as we were all to be playing at the level that we were. So I thought that was a really great experience in general and, and the friendships I developed will last forever. I don't get to see my teammates quite as often as I'd like to, but whenever I do, it's like no old times have passed and it's full of laughs. So yeah, university was a, a pretty incredible experience for me, both academically and from, from a, a skill standpoint of everything I've had to learn. Cool. All right. So we're just going to take a little pause for a tea fact, which we have on every episode of the show, and then we'll dive right back into this. So it's a moment for you to relax. Okay. So the tea fact is, do you store your tea near your coffee or near your vice cabinet? So please don't do that because you should store your tea away from strong competing aerosmiths so that you can keep the tea's flavors intact because apparently if they're too close to the spices all coffee they wrote together and your tea kind of like loses flavor and that comes from romantichomes.com slash entertain slash posting hints slash 10 fun facts about tea good to know good to know i think my teas are right next to my spices i gotta go move them <laughs> <laughs> do you like drinking tea i do yeah i'm more of a coffee in the morning tea at night kind of girl mm-hmm. so i'm assuming then Tea's kind of something maybe that you have before you go to bed, kind of de-wind, decompress type thing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what I use it for. <laughs> also, I'm really interested to know what first inspired you to try bobsledding. Out of all the sports that you could have picked, what was appealing about this one? The, the most appealing thing about bobsledding is that it was a late entry sport. I knew that at 22 years old, I was not behind the game for trying it and I still had a chance of, of doing well in it. Besides that, I have always been a speed demon. Don't check my driving lessons, my driving records and <laughs> a little bit of a daredevil. And the, I knew that the qualities of being a good bobsledder mean, meant you had to be strong, fast and powerful. And that was really my skills as an athlete in general, like my basketball skills, I couldn't hit a three-pointer to save my life like I wasn't a skilled basketball player I was a good athlete and and really that transferred really well into bobsled can you tell us a little bit more about the sport generically maybe some of the different roles that are on some of the different teams yeah for sure 
Okay. I love talking about this stuff because it's, it's not what everyone thinks it is. So when bobsled until bobsled started in the, the fifties and at the time it was four men and one woman in a sled. And that's quickly changed in the sixties and it just became four men in a sled. The sleds kind of evolved, they got faster. The tracks had to go from these natural tracks, which were cut out of ice and snow every year to these concrete man-made ones that get iced over and then they get frozen with ammonia underneath it. And men competed all the way through from the sixties till, till now women got to compete the first time in the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake city. And women at that point started only competing in the two man sled. Men have always competed in the two man and the four man events in 2018, we really tried to get the women in the four-man event for women event into the Olympics, but unfortunately there just wasn't enough female teams competing in it. They, after the 2014 Olympics, they made the event gender neutral. So on the world cup, there was two girls, a Canadian and American that were competing with crews of all men trying to race against all men. And then we realized that, you know what, no matter what women are going to have a hard time competing against men because at the end of the day, we're lighter. We're just going to be too much lighter. So if you have a 70 kilo girl versus a 120 kilo guy, you're going to have to make up that difference by adding 50 kilos to the sled. And when you add the 50 kilos to the sled, that means it's heavier, which means it's harder to push. So it just, it's never going to really work out. So there's a total weight that the sled and the athletes in the sled can weigh at the bottom of the track. You get weighed after every heat but there's a minimum weight that the sled can be. So ideally you want to have a minimum weight sled with heavy athletes pushing it so that at the bottom you're, you're as close to that maximum because weight, obviously you want to be as heavy as possible within the rules because mass accelerating down downhill equals velocity. We want to go fast. What else can I tell you? So this, these Olympics in 2022 was the debut of the women's second event, which is monobob. It's a one person bob sled. This event was created for para-athletes, athletes that don't push, they get launched off the top, but we, we created a sled that is standardized. Every sled is the same. It's the only sport like that where all the sleds are the same. And it just comes down to the athlete's push and the drive down the track. To win a bobsled race, you need three things. You need the fastest drive possible, or this I'd say the smoothest drive possible. You need the fastest push possible, and you need the best Equipment. equipment really does play a huge factor into it. It's kind of like, for, I like to describe it as Formula One on ice, where the athletes are the motor, and there is a strategy into, into driving as well. At the top of the track, the ice is has grooves cut into it that go for 50 meters, five zero meters. And you have, you can push it as long as you want. If you want to push for 100 meters, go for it. But uh, the, it just never <laughs> would work because when those grooves run out, the sled is unstable. You're on open ice. And so if you try to jump into a sled that is outside the grooves, you, it's going to skid. And anytime you skid, you might as well pull the brakes because you've lost all chances that you, you, ha you have to win the race. We always say a tap on the wall is better than a skid because skids really do. It's like hockey stopping, like slowing down on the ice. So the pilot, if in a two-man sled, you have the pilot and the brakeman. In a four-man sled, you have the pilot, two pushmen, still known as brakemen, even though they don't do anything. All they do is push in the sled and hold on. And then the brakeman who also pushes, 
jumps in the sled, but then they also pull the brakes. Once you cross the finish line, you only ever pull the brakes once you cross the finish line. Never down in the middle of the track would you pull the brakes. It's actually a huge fine to do that because you wreck the ice. <laughs> yeah, I think that's in, in most races, it's the, the cumulative time of two heats. But in the Olympics and the World Championships, the World Championships are every year, every fourth year, the World Championships is the Olympics. And that is a cumulative time over four heats total. And that's a sport of bobsled in a nutshell. <laughs> hey, I know having watched quite a few Olympics now, actually one of the most exciting winter sports for me to watch is, is bobsledding, just because of how fast it goes and how close it can be between different countries, different athletes, and how mm-hmm. often it comes down to like really like fine details. Like a hundredth of a second. And in 2018, my teammate jumps Justin Cripps in the two-man sled after four heats tied the Germans. So they tied for a gold medal after four heats to the hundredth of a second. And every single heat was, Justin had the second fastest heat in every single heat, but cumulatively he finished number one. Whereas the guy who was number one had the number one heat uh, three times in a row, but then he had the number four heat in one of the heats. So he, his time, it's just crazy how it works out and, and how many, like, the difference of how you're sitting in the sled can actually win or lose you a race. It's crazy. I'm curious to, to know, and this might be my favorite thing I'm going to ask you, how does it feel to hurdle yourself down a nice track in a gravity-powered sleigh or bobsled? <laughs> it's exhilarating, and it's definitely not, I tell people this often, it's not for the faint of heart. It's, it's gnarly. Like, it hurts. <laughs> you undergo, when an astronaut takes off in the space, they get nine Gs of force a going through a sharp right hand corner at the bottom of of Whistler going 100 and almost 150 kilometers an hour you undergo at least five g's of force in the format we'd argue maybe even six so it's it's tough on your body that's why it is a late entry sport we want you to be closer to physical maturity the exception being now with these monobob sleds they go a little bit slower because there's less math in them so we can start athletes a little bit younger than we than we have been before in the past. But yeah, it's it's a carbon fiber bullet that's full of metal with no seat belts. So and you're you're trying to accelerate these things about again, the fastest I've ever gone is 149 kilometers an hour. Haven't broken that 150, darn it, but that's okay. 149 was too fast for me, to be honest. The fastest track in the world is Whistler. So we're a little bit biased here in Canada. We go fast often where a lot of the tracks in Europe the max speed will be in the 130. Here in Calgary, the, the max speed here is about 131. So it's it's very different. Every track is unique. Every track has has a, its own challenges, but in general, I like to go fast. <laughs> That's awesome. And do you still do it a, a little bit? If three of your friends or another of your friends said, you know what, I want to try out one of these things and I want to go with you because you know, what you're doing, w- would you do it with them or would you only do it with teammates that you've trained with and you t- trust to like a very deep level? <laughs> well, because I'm the pilot, everybody's in my hands. So I, it's, I'm the one responsible. So would I jump in somebody else's sled? I I would double think who the person is first. Would I go down with a brand new beginner athlete? Nope, no thank you, not for me. But would I go if I would would I take four or sorry three of my friends down? 
I probably would if Calgary was open. I'd actually have no problem going down and taking a bunch of guests down in Calgary. In Whistler, I've driven the the, the tourist bobsleds, but we start those from corner seven and we still go 128 kilometers an hour. So what I, I've never driven four men in Whistler and I, I don't intend to ever. It's just like a lot to handle, but the boys do it really well. And, and on a slow day, I probably would consider it, but it's just a tough track to really learn on. But I've done the four-man event here in Calgary and I've done it in Park City, Utah, and I've done it in Eagles, Austria and St. Moritz, Switzerland. So um, there are some tracks that I would be totally comfortable to take some friends down if the opportunity ever presented itself. But I, I only retired in February. So my last time down the track was actually in December. And it's weird. I'm going to Whistler next week, actually, to help deliver some monobobs that we got. And I'd jump in a monobob in a heartbeat, no problem, and take myself down. But I don't know if I really want to be responsible with somebody else in the back. <laughs> That's I was just curious. So you also mentioned in your bio that you're, you're one of the only people in the world that has piloted all three types of bobsleds. So which do you prefer and why and which do you find the most challenging? So it's kind of funny because it's a loaded question. So four man is actually the easiest sled to control when you're driving. That being said, it is the fastest. So you're dealing with an, like speed actually makes it a little bit more difficult um, in some cases, in most cases, I'd say, but it has the most control. Now, the difference is it's the hardest one to save if you get into trouble. So if you're if you're going into a corner and you're not set up right and you're going in wrong and and you're in a four man and you're kind of teetering like at the point where you might crash you're probably going to crash in a two man you have less control but it, it is easier to save it's easier for you to correct the sled and get it back online and then the monobob is actually the most difficult sled to drive it's i'd equate it to because it has such a short wheelbase, it's like driving a rear-wheel drive pickup truck that has no weight in the back on ice. So the, your back end wants to kick out on you all the time. And that's why when we see these things on TV and you can see they're definitely the sleds that skid more often, they're really a harder thing to finesse. Now, that being said, they are the safest as well. So often we see them, they barely crash. And when they do crash, they often pop right back up. So I feel the safest in a monobob for sure four man is by far the most fun interesting it's good to like hear from the inside because if you're just watching it on tv obviously that's a very specific angle that they're showing you you could have a totally different perspective just watching it versus by experiencing it right so totally yeah yeah i can watch and i can there's little fine details that i pay attention to but even then, it's it's tough to see everything on TV and really appreciate the angles because when we do video review, whenever I'm practicing and I have a coach standing in a corner and they film with an iPad as we go by, like we have to slow that down to super slow motion to actually understand the the route that I took and and the correction that needs to be made. And you can, we just don't really see that in slow motion when you're just watching a rundown on TV. Yeah, because by the time you blink three times, it's over. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're like in and out in a corner in less than three seconds most of the time. Okay, and then so in 2015, you created some history in the spot of bobsled. So can you tell us about this, how it felt and what happened? Yeah, so that was during the time, and I, I mentioned it before, when there were two females that were piloting four-man sleds on the World Cup circuit, made crews of all men. 
And I was competing on the, the development circuit, the B circuit called the North America's Cup. I was in Park City, Utah. And the men's race needed more competitors in it. We didn't have enough sled to make it a full race. So because the event was gender neutral at the time, I mean, you could have as many men or women in each sled that you wanted, but no one had ventured out yet to create an all women's team. And my coach pulled me in the room and she said, you're driving for men. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? I had no idea. And like, we need more sleds in the race. You girls are here. You're going down. And I was like, okay. And my coach was the Olympic silver medalist from, from the 2010 Olympics. And, you know, this was something that she had been fighting for her whole career. And it never came to fruition while she was competing that she would get the opportunity to do such a thing. And and, you know, it, for me, this wasn't, it wasn't about me being the first one that had the opportunity and, and, and got to do it, but it was, it was finally seeing something that so many women before me had been fighting for come to fruition. And so it was, a, it was an absolute no brainer. And the first time I went down the sled in a foreman, I screamed at the boys at the bottom because everyone was hyping it up that I was not going to be able to do it. And I just couldn't believe it. I looked at them. I'm like, you guys are all idiots. This is so much easier, <laughs> so much easier than two men. You actually have control. And, and that's really when I, it, it did change the way I thought about how to drive a bobsled as well. And I really think that's where my career, I started to elevate my, my skills as a pilot because I had a greater understanding about how, how the weight distribution in the sled played a role in the feedback of my hands. So I, I do attribute a lot of my success after that to the fact that I was given the opportunity to drive the foreman and, and experiment with it. And it made me a better bobsled pilot. Cool. And so great accomplishment, no doubt, was representing Canada in the Olympic Games in South Korea. So talk to us about the Olympic experience, some of the challenges, the most memorable moments, some crazy stories from the athletes' village, even any of that type of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, going to the Olympics was the best month of my life. I still say it. It was, it was, it had every emotion possible in it. It's something that you've been working so hard for, sacrificing for, and to finally have it all come to fruition was, was pretty incredible. And the, we were there early because we only had two extra days of getting on the ice and, and being on that track. So I only had had, I think, a total of 52 runs on that track ever. So we got to go a little bit before the opening ceremonies, we had our two days on the track and then we were kicked off the track until it was our time to, to race. So had to go there and, and arriving in Korea, the people in Korea were so wonderful. They were so nice. They were welcoming. They were, they were fun. They were, they were just wonderful, wonderful hosts. And so we land in, in Seoul and we had to take it was like a three and a half, four hour bus ride to, to Pyeongchang, which is a mountain town, which is, actually closer to the Sea of Japan. And we were up in the mountains and it was only a 30 minute drive from like the top of the mountains to, to the Sea of Japan and, and the little town that was on, on the end there where all the rink sports were. When we got there, it was minus 50. Turns out that polar vortexes go across the world. They don't just come down in Canada. So they had their kind of like two week cold snap where, and they don't heat the hallways of, of their apartments, which is mind boggling. So even when you're in the building, all the windows are iced over, it's freezing. But then once you get into your, your apartment, then 
then it's warm. But it, it was just like a weird thing because they only have two weeks of really cold, cold weather all year. They didn't have a, a ton of snow. It was a lot of man-made snow. And yeah, so the first kind of three days I got to, my dream came true of walking in the opening ceremonies and getting to take that all in and truly, truly living that experience. And I went to events for the first three days. I got to go cheer on my Canadian teammates. And then after three days, it was a week out from my competition. So that's when I kind of shut things down. My competition was really late at night. I competed at 9, 10 p.m. Oh, so, uh, yeah. So, and I take a lot of caffeine when I race, like a lot. So I knew that I would be staying up after racing until probably three o'clock and four o'clock in the morning. So my teammate and I actually ended up just kind of staying up all night on purpose and we'd sleep all morning on purpose. There wasn't a lot of training left to do. You're in taper mode. It's a lot of mobility work and getting physio. And, and I think I had two workouts and the gym there was so cool. It was such a great setup. And we had a, a team Canada in set up in the parking garage, but the problem was it was so cold down there because they don't heat their, their external areas. And, and then we got on the ice three days before and, and did our training runs and polished our runners and and had our two-day races, and I made a big mistake on our first heat. I competed with teammate Heather Moyes, who it was her fourth Olympics, and I think ultimately I still had pretty good run, and that was it. I, Looking back on it, there was nothing I regretted. We came sixth. We missed a medal by 0.7 seconds, and pretty cool experience afterwards was, was getting to, we went to so many events after, and beer in hand always it was the most insane four-day party I think I ever was a part of and coming back to the village at 7 30 in the morning to go get some pancakes before I went back to bed for three or four hours before I woke back up again to go see another event and start my day all over again so it was pretty fun by the end of it there's a bunch of athletes that were done their events and we kind of all became this big kind of crew there was like 65 of us that we're going to events and cheering on people and, and just being a part of, of team Canada and spending time at team Canada house. And it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so have you been to any Olympics since? Is it on the bucket list to go, to go again, depending on location? I qualified for Beijing um, back here in February. I qualified, but unfortunately we had four girls qualify for three spots and I, I was the odd man out. I didn't get to go. So it was my bucket list to go back. I was in better shape last year than I was in 2018. I was driving the monobobs exceptionally well. I was breaking track records all over North America. And, and unfortunately, I just never got a chance to fight for a spot to go. So that's when I, I retired. So it won't be on my list to go back to the Olympics as a athlete. But if Canada does secure the 2030 Olympics back in Whistler, I would love to go back in some capacity, whether it be coach or admin staff or be a part of, of the action and bring my experience. <laughs> what do you think the number one thing was that you learned about yourself during your Olympic experience? Well, that's a really good question. What did I learn about myself during my Olympic experience? I didn't learn a lot during the Olympic experience because I, I always kind of knew I'm the kind of person who performs really well in big situations and I was really happy with my performance in the Olympics like there there wasn't anything that I would have changed going into that year there was a lot I would have changed and and I had to learn almost the hard way about being so obsessed about being ready that there is such thing as going overboard on that and that's where I 
I developed in the Olympic year in the off season, I was so obsessed with being like the best of the best that I possibly could be that I was doing everything. And then I was doing more and physically I was killing myself. So I would go to the gym, do my sprint push and lift for seven hours uh, here at the CSI in Calgary. And then I'd go to a spin class after because I wanted to get some extra calories burned. And I, I was just like overly obsessed. I wasn't eating anything because I was gaining weight and then I had no energy to do anything, but I was still gaining weight. And I realized that my hormones were all out of whack. It was just like a, a vicious cycle that almost like psychologically was the the biggest impact in and why I, I feel I didn't have the best physical performance that I should have that year because I was working way too hard and I had to learn how to almost recover better, which is such an important piece. And I, I never really valued it until I, it was too late. Awesome. So obviously you left a, a legacy in Canadian bobsled. So what's your hope for the future of the spot? What would you tell someone looking to get started in the spot too? My hope for the future of the sport is that Bobsled Canada becomes a entity that is supportive of, of its athletes, where it can give athletes every chance that it can to succeed. I feel the model that we had right now, and we're kind of fighting it, is that it's almost the opposite, where when athletes have success, it's in spite of the program, it's not because of the program. And for athletes that are hoping to get into it, I, I hope that you work really hard and that it's, you can contact me if you want to learn how to get in or just come to the ice house and learn how to push here in Calgary. Alberta and BC have really good programs where we can kind of groom athletes, let them get a taste of the sport, let them see if they really want to grow within it. So it is the thing that I didn't know going into it and I'm glad I didn't know because I don't think I would have is it's expensive it is the most expensive sport I bought my own bobsled it was $91,000 oh uh, <laughs> not everyone has to do that I had I did because I felt that I wasn't getting a fair opportunity based on the equipment that I was given and if you remember equipment base is is a really important piece and sure enough as soon as I had the equipment I started doing really well so for me, it was all about investing in myself. And uh, I think athletes that are you going to enter any sport, you have to understand that you have to invest in yourself from from multifaceted angles. It's it's not just financially, it's taking care of your body, mind and your spirit as well. And like anything, if, if, if you want it bad enough, you'll find a way. And then so that transition from a competitive sports career into future adventures is often very challenging and uh, one that we see all the time that can lead athletes into depression and experiencing kind of uh, mental health issues. And so after you left the sport and retired, you worked for two months with a tech startup company doing business development. So what did you do and what did you kind of realize about yourself from this particular adventure? Yeah, that, that adventure was, I hadn't had a paycheck in five months and I needed a job <laughs> and I knew I was done bobsled. I knew it was about time that I was going to start entering the world. I had gone back to school in 2019 and got a, a postgraduate certificate in business because of all the skill set that I learned from running my team like a business where I was collecting sponsorships so I could make equipment purchases such as my bobsled and the runners that go underneath it. 
I was speaking a lot. So I was basically using myself as a business and I wanted to get a piece of paper that proved that I knew what I was doing since I no longer was going to pursue any career in the science field. So I, I was actually offered, I was headhunted for a couple jobs, just right basically as soon as I put open to work on my LinkedIn profile. And the, the tech startup that I started working with was a great job. It was, it really was a, the company I hope does extremely well, but what I learned from it is the wrong industry for me. I, my heart will always belong in sport. I need to be in sport. I love sport. It's what, it's my passion. It's the thing that, you know, inspires me to, to continue to work hard. So when I was working kind of in an engineering firm, like speaking to engineers daily about their thing. It's not that uh, anything against them. It's just, that's not my passion. So that's why it was such a short stint there. And when this opportunity to work with the CHL came over, it was an absolute no brainer for me to apply because it's, it was my skill set that I had of, of dealing with sponsorship from my own experience. The only difference is now I get to do it with a league that has literally millions of followers, not just the 250 people that watch CBC for the one minute that I'm on during my run on, on Saturdays. Uh, so I, I couldn't help but jump at the opportunity. Cool. Yeah. So as you alluded to, you became the director of partnerships at the Canadian Hockey League. So what does this role like entail just in a little bit more detail? And what are your goals for the role? Yeah, so my goal right now is is my primary focus is the WHL, but I I also work with the OHL and the QMJHL. So for those listeners that don't know, those three leagues are considered major junior in Canada, and the umbrella term for them is the Canadian Hockey League. We are the leading feeder of of draft picks to the NHL. It's where young men and hopefully soon young women. There is the first ever female is drafted this last year were given opportunities to play at kind of the highest level and and often their main goals when they play in this league is to play professionally and if they don't play for professionally every year that they play for a team in in this in a Canadian Hockey League club they are given one year of an academic scholarship so these guys you want to talk about backup plans which I always have been an absolute um, poster child for always have to have a backup plan so they can, if they don't move on to play professionally, they will have their education kind of covered, which is so important, I think. And so my goal is to find partners who are willing to, either if they're looking for traditional marketing opportunities, or the thing that we do really well is connect at the community level, community uh, outreach programs, as we are in 52 Canadian markets from literally from Victoria Island or uh, Vancouver Island in Victoria, all the way to PEI. So uh, 52 are these, you know, not just A cities, not just the main cities, but the Bs and C cities as well, where t- more than half of the Canadian population lives in. And we all know that hockey is is a, a huge, huge entity in Canada. People love it. People follow it. And it's kind of the place where you can come to see the stars before they're stars. So my goal is to find partners with them in whatever capacity that partners look to connect either with their community or make an impact across Canada. Beautiful. And you do a lot of things. So another thing that you do is public speaking. But what do you find the most rewarding thing about speaking to different audiences of all different demographics and backgrounds? 
it depends on the audience actually is what I find most rewarding. I think when I go into elementary schools and I just know that if I can keep the attention of the kindergartens for long enough to get through my spiel and at least with that one, I get to introduce them to a new sport because most of them don't know what bobsled is. But, and when I speak to corporate, when I go into offices and speak to business, I think a lot of the things that I, I speak on are having to do with working with how to get along with different personalities and how to align and, and work and be a good team player. But the one that I think is the most meaningful to me is when I get to speak to girls in the kind of age 13 to 17 category, I can be frank and open with them about kind of the real, real sides of things happening. And, and they're not idiots. They, they know what happens when to the reality is that one in six girls don't continue sport or, or only one out of six girls continue sport past the age of 14 years old. That's kind of that spot where girls start to drop out, whether it be from body image, from cultural expectations, etc. And I like to be kind of call it the poster child for what really you can make happen in your life if you stick with it. Amazing. So what's the best lesson you ever learned and who did you learn it from? I have learned way too many lessons. I, but the problem is I always learn them the hard way. <laughs> uh, so that was, I was the joke in, in, I think it was about 2016 where I was going to, my slogan for Rizzling Bobsleigh was going to be learning the hard way since 2012. Because uh, I learned through mistakes. Oh, you know what? That's what I'll put it into is, and this is from Ashton Eaton, who is an American decathlete. He's married to a Canadian Olympian though. And he spoke at one of our, our pre-Olympic conferences and he said, I either win or I learn. There is no losing. If you remove losing from the equation and the, the kind of shame or the embarrassment that comes with losing and every kind of failure, I say that with air quotes, turns into a lesson that you can apply going forward you're only going to grow as a human being and I think that's what the most important part is is to never stop growing and learning so it's it's really helped me kind of not that I really really was afraid of things ever but worried it's gonna be embarrassing I just go for it because it's it's like okay this is either gonna be awesome and I'm gonna do great or I'm gonna learn something really valuable from this experience that I'm going to be able to apply to other areas of my life so I think that's the most valuable lesson that I've ever been taught. And it's one that I, I like to share with other people because I think it's really important. I've had to know that being a positive role model, as you've mentioned in multiple different ways as well, is something that is really important to you and that you've volunteered for a range of different charities. So why is volunteering so important to you? Because I volunteering to me is everything because if I am this person who is a public figure, if I'm as an Olympian, you never know who's going to be looking up and especially going into the schools that I speak at, like you never know who's going to be watching your every move and especially with social media now and I'm pretty open and honest on there. And for me, it's really important to kind of give back. So, so other people can have that inspiration that I was fortunate enough to be around all the time as a child. And I know that there's so many kids, especially, and that's, I do most of my volunteering with kids organizations are in situations where they don't have the positive role models in their life and they don't get to see it day in and day out like I did. And I think it's just so important for them to have that opportunity to see people who are doing really cool things or 
or just really being at the top of their level of whatever their pursuit is. And that's why it's really important for me to, to use my platform to create a positive impact. And I think that's fantastic because often a lot of sports people or celebrities have a great career and then they shut themselves off in the world when they, they, they could have such an impact and a bigger legacy by volunteering, giving back, even playing like basketball on the streets with with people in their area. Like it doesn't have to be major, it can be subtle, but I, I could literally, without being too cliche, change somebody's life forever, right? Absolutely. You never know what kind of thing you might say that somebody might have heard and stuck with them forever and changed their life. Awesome. And I don't know how much you do this at the moment, but I know at one point you used to create kind of vision ball workshops. So what was this all about? What was some of the inspiration behind creating this concept? And what were some of your goals, maybe even continued goals, if you still do it with the, with the whole workshop concept? Yeah, no, I, I want to get back into it, but I just haven't found the time. So it was my creative way of taking my public speaking online during the pandemic. I actually was doing it through experiences with an Olympian via the Airbnb uh, platform. And I was trying to think, you know, I tell my story and, and kind of what the basis of my story is. And, and for me, the biggest skill that I think that I can share is goal setting because I set goals every day. I have this task list of the goals that I have to set before I'm allowed to stop working today. I have always have fitness goals. If I, and I, what, and for me, fitness, how it's going to stay in my life. I'm the kind of person I used to work out five hours a day. I don't get to do that anymore because I'm not an athlete anymore as much as I would love to, because I actually am the sick person that enjoys doing that all the time. But for now, I know that I need to set goals in my fitness because it can't be just something where I'm just going through the motions and staying dormant because I'm actually not going to either push myself enough or I'm going to fall into a slump. And so for me, it's always about having something that I'm working towards in every part of my life, spiritually practicing gratitude, whatever it might be. So I, I created this online goal setting workshop where and I'm a very visual person. So having a, a vision board was something that I found really helpful where you kind of have your, your big hairy audacious goal, however you want to say it in the middle. And then it's like, okay, so this is something that is five to 10 years away that I'm working towards. Well, what are the little things that I can do along the way that are going to help me get towards that goal and really working to identify what those steps would be. So when I was working towards being an Olympic champion, because that was in the middle, I had that gold medal on there. It's like, okay, well, every day am I getting eight hours of sleep? Every day am I, how is my nutrition? Nutrition, And I didn't want to obsess about it. So it wasn't like, okay, I ate X amount of calories and this amount of protein and yeah, yeah. It was just like, yes or no. Did I have a good eating day, a clean eating day? And those all little things, kind of built in towards my overall goal of, of being, which I didn't hit, but again, learned a lot of lessons along the way. And I think I'm a better person for it because it was, it was methodical and I was, I was kind of taking in all the data I was going in. Now I set professional goals and, and relationship goals and all these other things. So again, I'm very visual. So I like to kind of see it out. I don't have my big picture because I I've moved since and it's in storage, but I have little, right now I do it via checklists and, and goal setting step-by-step. Step. So 
yeah, it's, it's something that I like to work with people through. I've done it with, with businesses about setting like business target goals. I've done it in schools with kids and kind of asking them the same question that I got asked in fifth grade, which is not, not what you want to be when you grow up, but what do you want to do when you finish high school? And, and planning that out as well. Sounds super cool. Like translating like your strengths and what you get it into something attainable. But what was the most challenging thing about setting it up? What new skills did you have to learn? Oh gosh, I had to learn everything about being online and showing presentations, which which it was great because now that's what I do all the time in my job. So I had to learn, I had to basically build it from a deck. I had to build videos. I I put them all together so I could explain A, what Bobsled is, why I'm relevant and someone they can be taking advice from and to learn how to market it um, via social channels and through Airbnb and some of the platforms that they set for us. So it was, it was a whole thing about kind of being a small business owner so i got to learn some extra things from that as well perfect and so outside of all of the crazy adventures that you get up to what do you do on a daily basis to look after your physical and mental well-being mental well-being for me a big one is practicing gratitude every day i like to write down i haven't been so good at writing it down lately but just think about three things that i'm grateful for kind of helps when things get stressful to remember that there still is a lot of good in life. And I go on a lot of walks. I like to spend time every day outside. It doesn't matter if it's minus 10 as much as I hate it. I I need to get that fresh air and it's a priority. And luckily I got a little, little dog right here that needs to go outside as well. So she's kind of my accountability buddy for that. And physically I I am said I just set a new goal of a new sport that I'm going to enter. I don't want to announce it here yet, but it's not really a sport, I don't think, but it, it's a new physical goal that I'm going to try and achieve by the spring. So I'll be working towards that just starting this week. Awesome. Looking forward to maybe seeing it on your social channels when you're, you're ready to announce it. So yeah, <laughs> it might be a little while when we got to get in the groove of things first, but yeah, I'll stay tuned. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and for sharing your story. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we finally got to do this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, everyone. This was another episode of the Tea with Mike show with Alicia Risling. Make sure you listen to this podcast. And if you enjoyed Alicia's story, definitely let us know on all the different social media platforms, the Facebooks and the Instagrams, the Twitters, etc. And just keep checking out other people's stories if you're enjoying Tea with Mike show on all major podcasting platforms and at teawithmike.com. Thanks so much, Alicia. It's the Tea with Mike show.